Hi folks, this is Grounded, stories of refugee resettlement in Vermont. I'm your host, Tilden Reamer-Leach. In this episode, you'll hear stories like... Like, I feel like uh, humans have no limit, you know? Like, we can do whatever we want to do, and like... uh, if we came this far, there's nothing stopping us from going even farther. And uh, I just hope that um, I, I'll, I'll be able to create such a legacy where it's like based off of um, understanding, acceptance, and knowing who the family is as a person. So like, and I'm the first generation as well. So I'm like building a foundation for my families history basically so uh, whatever I do that's like one one of the things I keep in the back of my mind like uh, whatever I do now is gonna like build what I do in the future on the last episode of the podcast we talked about refugees experiences of initial resettlement in Vermont and the different challenges that come along with trying to gain independence and establish a new life in Vermont today we're going to talk about experiences of assimilation and integration for refugees, what it means to be a Vermonter, and community viewpoints about the increasing numbers of refugees being resettled in the state. Now, we have all heard America described as a melting pot, where immigrants of different nationalities come and assimilate into one singular American experience. It is widely understood that this is not the reality, especially for many immigrants of color. It is more likely that the U.S. culture has been shaped by cultures of Native Americans, Latin Americans, Africans, and Asians. Different cultures have contributed their own distinct flavors to American culture. So, I think before we hear people's stories of their changing values and their process of becoming part of the culture of Vermont, I think it's important to define a few key terms that we're going to talk about through this episode. Assimilation is defined as a process of integration whereby members of an ethno-cultural community, such as immigrants or ethnic minorities, are absorbed into another generally larger community. This implies the loss of the characteristics of the absorbed group, such as language, customs, ethnicity, and self-identity. Acculturation, on the other hand, can be defined as a two-way process of cultural integration where minority cultures and existing cultures are changed. This process also enables minority cultures to retain unique cultural markers such as language, food, and customs. I wanted to bring up these different definitions because many of the stories we will listen to in this episode point at different amounts of assimilation and acculturation. And I think it is important to think about what type of integration we want refugees to experience in Vermont. With that, let's start by talking to Amir. We heard some of his story in the previous episode. He is a Bosnian who came to the U.S. when he was in his early 20s. He is now an employee at the University of Vermont. I 
tell myself uh, I live here and now. You know, you can have goals; those are good, and you can change past. So, those are there, but you live here and now, and you, you never know what can change. You know, we. I know from the May 15, 1992, that you never know what you can, when and why it can change. So pack your bags, move. Material stuff is nothing. Is nothing. Um, your attitude is everything, you know, and your willingness to adapt to change is everything. So we adapt. In the media. Refugees are often portrayed as resilient and adaptable. But what does that adaptability look like in practical terms? For Amir and his family, levels of acculturation change from person to person. If you ask my wife, she's assimilated. I did not. Really? Yes. Um, I speak to my children in Bosnia. I teach them as much as I can about Bosnia and how we do things, how we say things, and why we do them. Um, I'm a, I, I would call myself man of faith, so I'm, I'm religious. Um, Islam is my religion, uh, and I think it teaches a, to be a good person, not as it is portrayed in media, unfortunately. And I try to teach my kids that. Um, Sometimes I have to talk to them in English so they <laughs> understand what I'm saying in Bosnian. Uh, but it's always, you know, I'm a big sports fan. If you ask me if Bosnia would play United States, which they did like four days ago, um, I would root wholeheartedly for my country, which is Bosnia, you know. Um, I like the smell of food, Bosnian food. I like to eat Bosnian food. I like to talk Bosnian. I. I like the sounds, I like the jokes that are not really appropriate in English and could not be translated really because it's a special type of humor that we have. Um, I like everything about Bosnia, uh, even though I was 15. I think uh, more so the, the kind of like the cultural um, uh, thing that stayed and grew in me was in spite of the war. You know, I was in Croatia, in Germany, in the United States, and all those things that happened, the bad things, I guess, it was us against them. It was Bosnians against racism in Germany or Bosnians against, you know, Croatians while they were having their own troubles. They were looking for us like, oh, you're eating our food and working, you know, which I understand, you know, we were there and Yes, we, we would get help, and you can see some Croatian families that didn't have any food, but they're in, in their own country, and we would get help because we're, we were refugees, you know. I understand, you know. But I had a lot of friends from both countries. I went to school there, not in Germany, in Croatia. Um, but yes, I am Bosnian through and through. <laughs> My wife likes, you know, she, she's a Bosnian too. Yeah. Um, she, uh, we met here, uh, you know, from all the places, but uh, she's a Bosnian too, but, uh, you know, she's more assimilated, I would say, if you, if you want to use that term. Um, 
and she talks to the boys mo mostly in uh, English. Uh, and I understand because they can understand her better. I mean, they use English in throughout their life in kindergarten or, or preschool and daycare and now in, in school as well, you know. All their cousins, Bosnian cousins, quote unquote, they were born here, uh, they speak in English, so I can't understand that. But, you know, my goal is to show them what their father and their mother, where they came from, and what culture. Within the same refugee family, some members hold on to aspects of their culture while others reject their traditions. For some, it is passing on their native language to the next generation. For others, it is continuing to eat traditional foods or go to worship. For Amir, retaining Bosnian traditions seems to have a lot to do with helping his kids develop a sense of self that is both American and Bosnian. Amir, have you brought your kids to Bosnia? They love traveling, so I'm not sure if they're like, let's just go anywhere. Or when I told them uh, we're planning our trip to Bosnia, hopefully next summer, and they were like, yes, we're going to Bosnia. And then, and I was like, if I said Mexico, they would react the same thing. We went to Bosnia once. Uh, my boys are now eight and five. Uh, they were one and four then, um, and they were great. They were great. Well, we did a lot of thought and teaching in Bosnian, using Bosnian words. You know, he's going to learn English. I mean, there's no way he can't hear. Um, he's surrounded by it. But uh, when we came to Bosnia, after two weeks, he just spoke Bosnian. I mean, and my heart was like bigger than this room. Like, you know, there's something about it. Uh, we. We go to, for example, the capital of Bosnia, Sarajevo, mm -hmm. and it's really multicultural thing. We have churches, synagogues, and mosques ringing, singing at the same time. You have these bakeries open all night long, just smelling of this beautiful, you know, pastries and stuff, um, and people talking. Uh, people joking, you go to the restaurant and ordering something that is off-menu, which is regular thing. And the, and the waiter is your best friend at that point. They come out, what can I do for you? I mean, there's no such thing here. You can't just say, All right, yeah, why don't you give me like half of this and half of this meal and, and three quarters of this meal? Like, are you crazy? Go somewhere else. There, it's like normal. Like, you know, I don't like any of the stuff on the menu. Can you do me a favor and do this? No problem, man. You're the boss. And then he cracks the joke. Many of the refugees I spoke with understood that their kids have adjusted more fully to life in America. Yet everyone I talked to still identified specific cultural traditions they want to maintain and cultivate. For many, these were religious traditions. Fet, who is Laotian, and now works for the Burlington City Council, had this to say. Definitely growing up, um, like I was raised Buddhist, so we went to a lot of the temples and, um, and in Boston and, you know, went to the different festivals such as like the, every year there's the, in the springtime around April, there's like the water festival. So, 
we were able to go there and, and um, celebrate spring. And there's a lot of practices um, such as um, going to the temple and getting your fortune read and by the, the, the monks um, doing um, different ceremonies um, such as like uh, pouring the water into the ground to signify um, rebirth um, because, you know, it's springtime, life is coming back. Um, there, my dad kept a shrine, so every morning he would give money, um, give food to, um, the shrine, um, so then it signified, um, good, good fortune and, and prosperity. So I think that that's something that I've, while I'm not religious myself, I've kept with my family, uh, my kids, and, um, you know, they really like have a appreciation to um, to the ties of Buddhism. Hearing Fett, I thought it was interesting that even though she herself isn't religious, she still thought it was important for her children to know the religious rites that her family has practiced for generations. Other people spoke of the difficulty of having to navigate interacting with other refugees who accepted or rejected American values on different levels than they had. Honey, a Tanzanian mother of four, was very adamant about this challenge. You know the things with the U.S. there are so many opportunities which we don't get where we came from? In the U.S. you can do anything you want. You can go to school, you can do whatever you want. In our country there are so many things like you can't do it because you're a woman. I work with people sometimes, they're African, they make these jokes on me that you're a woman, you should be a housewife and be home on like, excuse you? First of all, I know someone is housewife. And I will never marry a guy who will make me a housewife because I'm not. My job, he will walk or walk, he doesn't want to walk, that's it. But I will never let a man put me down because I'm a woman, no. If you have that opportunity, you can walk, you can do this. I can do the same thing. If I cannot do it, I will find the one. It's fit on my situation, but not like, oh, because I'm a woman, women be belong to kitchen or something. No, I don't believe that. But still, there is a lot of African men. They live here in the U.S., and they still think, like, women, they belong to kitchen. And most women, they don't want to speak up for themselves. They just, like... Oh, because the husband said, oh, you can walk, but you have to stay home and have babies. They don't have a say. But me, I can't. And that's why most African women, they don't like me because they think I'm rude or I don't respect men. It's not like I don't respect them. Like, you get all you give. <laughs> if you don't give a respect, that's how it is. I divorced my ex-husband, and I don't regret none. He was abusive, and I could not take it. So he say, I'm bad because I divorced him and everybody hate me for that. Oh, you divorced your husband, you're rude. I say, no, I'm not. I'm not going to stay with a man who, until he's going to kill me because, oh, I love this person. That's not love. So I'm happy with my life. I'm a single mom raising my kid. Speaking with Honey, I was curious if her independent nature was something she always had or if she attributed it to American values she had learned here in Vermont. I think it's something I have since I was little. Yeah. When I was little, I have this, I have seven brothers. 
and I'm the second one from the last mom. My, our last mom is a boy. So I was like, only a girl in the family. And then my uncle has 10 girls, but none of them ever go to school. Because my uncle believed that, because they're women. He used to tell my dad, because my dad is young. And he's the older one, like maybe 30 years younger there. So my dad used to say, these kids, they need to go to school, brother. He's like, no, I'm not taking someone's wife to school. Their husband would take them to school. And I used to say, no, this is not going to happen to me. So when I finished school, I was like, I'm going to go to college. My dad is like, you know, our culture, we can't do that. This, this. I say, no, I left. I went to Nairobi. So I started living with my mom's friends. That's it. And I start going to school myself, learning my English myself, because I went to school, they were teaching us Swahili. My grandfather used to tell me all the time, if you want to like succeed somewhere, you need to go for it. Don't like ask for it. Go for it, try your best. So it seems like with Honey, it's not that her mindset began to change from living in the US, but rather that the values she always held were more in line with U.S. ideas than her culture's traditions back home. A lot of the previous voices we heard on this episode talked about passing on cultural values to their children and the challenges associated with that. I wanted to make sure to share the perspective of someone who is part of that second generation. I had a great conversation with Aiden, a student at the University of Vermont studying anthropology. He is a Somali Bantu refugee who lived in Dadaab, that's spelled D-A-D-A-A-B, if you want to look it up later. It's the second largest refugee camp in the world that is located in the southeast of Kenya. He was born there and lived there until he was six years old when he moved to Vermont with his family. We will hear more about his youth activism work he is currently involved in in the following episode. So, Aiden, have you been back to the refugee camp in Kenya? I hope to go back to Africa one day. I haven't gone back since. Yeah. <coughs> but my parents have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my mom's like, we're going this, this summer and I'm not leaving you. Uh, without, I'm not going without you. Because uh, apparently there's like a lot. Like, it's been like 20, 22 years since I went back to Kenya. So like, as an anthropology student, it's like, <laughs> uh, there's gonna be a culture shock either way, because with all the knowledge I'm gaining over here in this Western society, <laughs> and like uh, being able to um, like compare and contrast the two worlds, because it's totally different. Like I was born in the like what was once the biggest refugee camp in the world. So, uh, you know the dab in uh, Kenya? Where is it, what part of Kenya? It's like on the, like the, the borderline of like Somalia. And like, it's, it was a huge complex. Like the last, the last time I checked, 
in April last year, they had about like 360,000 Somali Bantus registered for the camp. Yeah, it's, uh, and then like being able to, I, I was six years old at the time. So like life, life was, life was just like, <laughs> uh, just play, play. But I got to, like, one thing I always tell people is that, like, um, multicultural, like, refugees have, like, a lot to bring, even though if you don't understand them linguistically. Like, um, they encountered adulthood at an early age. Like, being able to do, like, a lot of chores and, like, being able to provide for the family at an early age and, like, carry water for miles and like uh, and then I don't know now coming to America like being able to understand how this world does their expectations like I feel like I'm, I'm just gonna have a completely different viewpoint when I go back but at the same time it's gonna be it's gonna be a little awkward cause uh, with the linguistic cause I'm learning a lot of I'm like um, advancing in my English, so um, so it's like it, it's gonna be a little bit difficult for me to like communicate, even in my own native language. Yeah, that's gotta be really tough. How do you think you're gonna feel seeing old friends? Mm, yeah, like, uh, like the, it's funny they all know me. Like everybody there knows me, but. I I don't remember some of them because I was so little, yeah. And like from that from that perspective, like they're probably gonna think, oh, he probably forgot about us, this this and that. But that's not that's not how it is. On some level, I could relate to the mixed feelings Aiden was going through. I lived in China for several years, and when I came back to the U.S., I didn't really feel like I fit in here in Vermont anymore but China didn't feel like home either. I wondered if this was similar to how some refugees I interviewed felt, but obviously to a much greater extent, given the amount of time they've been here and the difficulty in being able to return home. I imagine that refugees that had come here as adults held on to their culture more than their kids who have had a much more tenuous tie to their homeland. Uh, I guess it'll be a lot of learning for me as well, just in terms of my own culture and uh, my own world, because my parents are doing their best to like keep the culture alive in America. Because like, uh, like that example, like once you, you don't really pertain to something, it doesn't, uh, it ends up feeding. It also goes for culture as well. So, like, if you don't, like, keep that traditional values and, like, beliefs, like, circulating, then uh, uh, it's going to start fading away. And, like, um, uh, th- like that's one thing that no one can, like, take that away from you, I feel like. It's, like, that, that pride you have for your country and, like, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any, like, particular values or traditions that you still really hold on to, you know, that you want to keep for yourself, or if you ever had children, you would want them to know about? 
Yeah, I, um, I'll definitely like keep carrying on like the I- Islam religion because um, it like helps me to like um, answer like life's biggest questions. And at the end of the day, like um, I, I feel like religion is like there to be able to like for you to connect with some with a higher power or like be in a spiritual connection with something that you believe in and like um uh um it's, it's that's why there's a lot of like people that like the ex- uh, the extremists that like um that like violate um some of like the religions like expectations and like beliefs cuz other people are going to start thinking oh that's that's part of their religion you know so like um it must be true but they can't generalize something that a sm- like one small group did with the whole religion which is crazy but i i just hope that uh for my future uh, like children like i want to teach them to be able to understand that people are always going to like um judge you no matter where you are but at the end of the day uh, it's n- like they shouldn't like stuck up to their level and like just to understand their worth and like uh, what they bring into the society because because uh, like hatred and violence is like the worst things to bring like around people especially youth because it influences them in like so many ways that we can't even um, imagine so like just like telling them like there's a there's a big world out there and it's waiting for you but you got to finish your studies first and then understand it through an academia perspective and then later go out and like see the real world for it like i feel like uh, humans have no limit you know like we can do whatever we want to do and like uh, if we came this far there's nothing stopping us from going even farther and uh, I just hope that um, I, I'll, I'll be able to create such a legacy where it's like based off of like um, understanding, acceptance, and knowing who the family is as a person. So like, and I'm the first generation as well. So I'm like building a foundation for my family's history, basically. So. It seems that refugees can feel very responsible to their kids and future grandkids to be that link to their family's past, not only in terms of their family's culture, but also their values now that they're living in the U.S. That's like one, one of the things I keep in the back of my mind. Like, um, whatever I do now is going to, like, build what I do in the future. Being able to, like, understand my my worth and like just building just building on myself and like uh, and like keeping my family at a close distance so that they could like be there as resources as well so uh, like uh, everything I do is uh, I know it's gonna ultimately like result into something later so uh, like that's why I try to do as much as I can to like help people out and like because the universe responds in so many ways (laughs) yeah so like 
uh, like I'm a huge believer in like what goes around comes around so like if you do good something good is gonna come just being kind and like working um, just being kind and like working hard and being humble is like my my ingredients for like who I am as a person I would say it is clear from these stories that there is no one clear-cut way to integrate into life in Vermont. And I think it's safe to say that the process of acculturation is a two-way street. Vermont is just as much impacted by the influx of diversity and multiculturalism that these refugees bring. I also want to point out here that each refugee's ability to assimilate into Vermont differs based on their race, their religious, and other identities. Refugees, quote-unquote, otherness is constantly being renegotiated and reevaluated depending on their physical location. Pablo Bose goes into detail about the difficulties in assimilating to Vermont whiteness in his article, New Vermonters and New Perspectives on Vermont migration. Vermont is not only demographically white, but as Vanderbeck suggests, a particular kind of rural whiteness has long been a tool used by the state to market itself to wealthy vacationers. What does it mean to be a newcomer, especially one who is marked by race, ethnicity, religion, language, or some other characteristic as other in this homogeneous and apparently bucolic space? For many refugees from Somalia, Sudan, and other parts of Africa, they find their identity marked as both black and often Muslim and are thereby treated to the same forms of stereotypes prevalent in other parts of the United States. On the other hand, Central European refugees, such as Bosnians and Kosovars, while no less othered, initially by language or religion, may be able to may be able over time to whiten in ways akin to the trajectory of working-class European immigrants in turn-of-the-century America. What do such racial dynamics mean in the daily lives of refugees, and what implications do they hold for the towns in which they are placed? Issues around race also surface when we ask the question, what does being a Vermonter mean? To really look at what it means to be a Vermonter, I think we first have to look at how Americans perceive the label of being a refugee. When I was in the process of interviewing people for this podcast, I really had my own revelation about how I perceive and relate to refugees. I realized that in the process of interviewing people, I was turning the people I spoke with into an other, people different from myself. All right, let me try and explain this a little bit better. So when I was talking to people and hearing their stories, I explicitly tried not to relate any of their experiences to my own life. I mean, after all, I really haven't gone through any significant trauma in my life, like many refugees have. 
But then something funny happened. When I was talking to refugees who were my own age, other college students, I couldn't help but connect some of their cross-cultural struggles to things I experienced when I was a little kid um, living abroad. I remembered how strange certain customs seemed to me and sort of open spirit willingness to try and learn new things and absorb a new culture. Suddenly, I saw what it might be like to see Vermont through their eyes. The difficulties of having to navigate through multiple cultures at the same time, trying to balance different expectations and different values, the challenges of trying to assimilate but still hold on to those very special values and customs that are true to your own culture. It was a strangely liberating experience to let myself understand where they were coming from. This experience helped me to reevaluate my own ideas of what the label refugee might mean. The identity refugee, while fixed in terms of a status given to a person by the federal government, still changes within different political, cultural, and geographical contexts. In the article, Being a Refugee University Student, a Collaborative Autoethnography by our student Kathleen Kendall and Lawrence Day, the refugee in the article states, Refugee, it is not an identity I want. It feels forced upon me as a form of language to help others see what type of creature I am. The idea of being a human equal to my peers felt impossible until I achieved my British citizenship. The red passport is what gives me my human rights. This article goes on to say, Refugees often resist and resent the labels and policies of those who seek to help them. Such a response may be informed by a refusal to be pitied. Pitied strengthens divisions between us and them, by lifting the non-refugee into an elevated and impotent place of innocence, obscuring their complexity in the situation and the systemic nature of the problem. It furthermore objectifies refugees and feeds into caricatures of the kind seen on television by our student's friend. The label of refugee is a constant reminder to our student of his otherness, leaving him to feel subhuman. Even while many refugees actively try to shed this label, historically, the U.S. government has arguably used this label to its own advantage. Refugees have been in a unique position to discredit authoritarian regimes, to glorify core American political values, such as freedom, and economic practices, such as capitalism, and to demonstrate American decency in humanitarian relief says the article, Perfectly American, Constructing the Refugee Experience, by David Haynes and Karen Rosenblum. The article goes on to say, Americans are ambivalent about refugees and how to perceive them, whether as political category, refugees from communist or right-wing governments, religious category, Buddhists, Muslims, animists, cultural category, non-English speakers and sometimes non-literate, 
economic category, low-wage manual labor or high-wage professionals, or racial category, particularly in places where their presence is as a new anomalous group. When resettled in America, refugees are also at the locus of American structures and reconsiderations of race, ethnicity, class, immigration, economics, politics, religion, and society. Refugees' experiences of resettlement in the U.S. are created in connection with the host communities around them and the various narratives host communities have about refugees. Unlike other immigrant groups, refugees are often seen as a resilient population, worthy of help. The presence of refugees also provides an opportunity for local towns to reiterate their own key values and construct a vision of the town as inclusive and generous. In a broader sense, refugees can further reiterate iconic American ideals, such as the American Dream success story, where immigrants, through hard work and dedication, can eventually climb the ladder of economic success. Another interesting argument given by David Harris and Karen Rosenblum is that, in some instances, the positive classification as a refugee can supersede other negative stereotypes that people have associated with race or religion. With these perceptions of what it means to be a refugee, we can now try to decipher what it means to be a Vermonter in this context. For Selena Colburn, one of our Vermont state representatives, her perception of being a Vermonter has changed over the years. Um, I think for, like, I had a lot of pride growing up in the idea of being a fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation Vermonter. It's just something that's really imbued in the values of the state, like there's that whole joke about you're not a real Vermonter unless you go back six generations. And when I moved back to Vermont, the last time was um, right at the turn of the century, which feels so weird to say, but it was. And it was in the middle of the civil union debates. So Vermont was legalizing civil unions in our legislature which was like a very historic thing nationally. And I was living in the Northeast Kingdom um, when I moved back working on a grant-funded project in St. Johnsbury, which is like, so the Northeast Kingdom is sort of the rural, more remote part of the state. And um, there was a fierce debate around the state, but also particularly in the Northeast Kingdom, about civil unions. People were really fired up about it. Um, And I started to notice, and I had a very particular point of view on it myself, like I was strongly in favor of of civil unions and taking that step. Um, 
But I started to notice that every person who was like speaking to that issue, whether they were pro or con, was credentialing themselves with this idea of being a real Vermonter. So people would say like, as a sixth generation Vermonter, I believe this, or as a fourth generation Vermonter, I believe that. And um, it felt pretty gross to me. Like, who cares how many generations of family you have here? You know, what? how does that entitle you one way or another to an opinion about whether or not people should have equal rights? It just, so it was like, I really started to, I sort of stopped identifying myself that way as proudly or as readily. Um, after sort of seeing how it played out in the debate, it just raised a lot of questions for me. And um, yeah, and I would say just having seen um, like a real change in Burlington especially, which is where I grew, that's the part of Vermont that I grew up and where um, a lot of my family is from. Um, I just think I've come around to the idea that if you're living in Vermont, you're a Vermonter, you know? So I have a different, I have a different, um, yeah, I have a different sense about my own, the like trajectory of my family and what kind of stake that gives me in being here or anywhere else. I think for many refugees, or former refugees, now citizens, there is still a lingering question of when. When will they be considered a true Vermonter? You know, like, how long do I have to live here before I consider myself from this place? Aiden, the UVM student, seems to have a pretty clear idea, though, of how to go about finding your own identity. Like, for, for instance, um, there's like the uh, family gener generation that like occurs through over here and like they, they carry that name Vermonter for a long time and then when people come fresh to America like that's that's where the term gets like a little bit iffy and like that's where it's like important to like emphasize what language to use like with your identity and how you feel in that present moment. Because, like, right now, um, like, I, I, w I would definitely call myself, like, a, an, Im uh, an immigrant and, like, a, a refugee, because that's what I am. And, like, um, like, I came from a different country for, like, for, uh, like, educational opportunities. And, like, most, most refugees tend to seek that when they come to a new place. So uh, I feel like uh, it, it should be up to the person to be able to identify who, who they are. And like, there are always going to be labels on people. Like, people are always going to label you. But I feel like uh, at the end of the day, as long as like, you know who you are and like, you stay true to yourself, that's like what makes all the difference. And that's one thing I want to start like telling, um, emphasizing on youth, especially at Burnton High School, because even I still remember like 
um, being like my only mindset in high school was like to fit in and like do what everybody else is doing, like not be an outcast. And like even in middle school, I bought a lunch lunchbox because everybody had one. <laughs> Put it on my backpack. So like those kind of things, like just like uh, builds up the assimilation to culture and like. Um, being able to understand that there's more to you than um, what your mind is thinking right now. So like, um, like I, I, I haven't like fully understood like be, uh, being unique to myself until like junior year of high school. Because um, as a young, as like a, especially a young black male, like you start realizing like struggles at an early age and like um, and like there's b bigger things that you you don't really see that become very uh, like emphasized later in life and like you just look back at it and like wow can be that happen and then but I feel like uh, those type of experiences like make up who you are because it gives you a different perspective um, of of like a viewpoint, which is really important. I think here, Aiden mentions the key factor in all of this, which is ultimately you get to decide your own labels and identifiers for yourself outside of what other people might label you as. Pablo Bose, the UVM professor, mentions another key factor in being able to self-identify as a Vermonter. The, the question of race and identity play a big role in this because I think that it is easier for some to shed the label of being seen as other, whatever that comes across as, whether it's as a new American or a refugee or whatever it is. Um, there are some who are able to fit into the mainstream because they don't look different, not just because their accent is different, not just because their language is different or their religion or their dress but because they fundamentally look different. And I think that's a, a bigger question that we need to grapple with as, as, you know, as a society. Throughout this podcast, we have focused very specifically on people's personal experiences connected to refugee resettlement. I did this intentionally to try and move beyond typical narratives of refugees' experiences portrayed in the media. Now, though, I want to take a step back and look at opinions Vermont residents have about recent refugee resettlement in the area. To do this, I have decided to pull from Dr. Pablo Bose's Vermonter poll research. Dr. Bose took advantage of an existing survey, the annual Vermonter poll, conducted by the Center for Rural Studies at the University of Vermont. It reaches state residents every year and he added four questions related to refugees to the survey. Dr. Bose gathered data for three years, from 2015 to 2017, and analyzed the survey results. Just to give you a little bit more context before we start talking about the results, I wanted to mention that since 1988, Vermont has resettled about 7,500 refugees this number continues to grow 
by approximately 300 to 350 refugees each year. Nearly all of the refugees that are resettled in Vermont have been located in Chittenden County. The largest ethnic groups of refugees include members of the Bhutanese, Bosnian, Vietnamese, Burmese, and Somali communities. Now, one of the main findings of this research is... In comparing the results from 2015 to 2017, we found that despite an increase in the anti-immigrant rhetoric that has dominated recent political discourse, especially towards incoming Syrian and Iraqi refugees, we discovered that support for refugee resettlement in Vermont had actually increased over the years. Refugee resettlement has been pretty popular in the U.S. There's been broad bipartisan support for the program. You know, it's a form of legal immigration. It's, you know, these are seen as people who are deserving of support. Um, and yet in the 2015, 2016, um, you know, primaries and election season, all of a sudden refugee resettlement became deeply politicized. And it became, um, for some, it became a source of bringing quote, unwanted people in, a security threat, um, you know, as a rise in kind of spectacular uh, and horrific terrorist attacks uh, in Brussels and Paris and uh, Istanbul and a number of other places were happening, there was this kind of sense of, well, what if they use this as a way of coming in? And it resulted in a backlash, not only in the U.S., but in Scandinavian countries, Interestingly, not in Canada, but uh, not as much in Canada, but certainly in Scandinavian countries, in the UK. Um, and so it really changed in some ways. But I was curious, what do people in Vermont think? We often hear, you know, the refugees all come to um, Chittenden County and really to Burlington, Winooski and South Burlington, Essex. Um, what do others think? And so I added four questions to the Vermonter poll, say, asking are you supportive of refugee resettlement? Or do you think people should come in at the same numbers, higher, lower, not at all? Uh, where do you think people should go? Who is most um, responsible for refugee resettlement and integration? And what is the most important component of integration? And what we found in, in um, we've done the poll for three years. It's going to be added on next year as well. This is a representative sampling of Vermont households not only in Chittenden County, but uh, all across the state. And what we found was uh, not only broad support and overwhelming support for uh, resettlement. The first year we asked, there was a good 20% of people who believed that um, there should be no resettlement. And there were 80% who were clearly in favor of it. Um, we found over time, even despite this uh, you know, contentious political moment we're in, support for the program has actually gone up. Support for more resettlement has gone up. Opposition to, and, and, you know, the idea of not bringing anyone in has gone well down. And so that's been a really interesting finding. Hearing that there is growing support in Vermont for increased resettlement of refugees in the state, I was curious if this trend only really applied to Vermont or if this sentiment actually extends to other parts of the nation. 
There is a very clear desire on the part of many small towns in places that you wouldn't necessarily think of in the Rust Belt, in the South, in the Midwest, in um, in all sorts of places where people are not necessarily going, places that have seen a decline in manufacturing, that have had um, their populations age, that have had young people leave for larger cities. Refugees have been part of a really important immigrant influx who have provided um, workers, um, uh, strengthened the tax base, uh, you know, opened new businesses, contributed to the local economy, um, changed the facet of the schools, improved, you know, changed the diversity of the place in a, in a very positive kind of way. Are there challenges? Absolutely, in all of those places. But that I've uniformly found from people across different political, you know, viewpoints having very strong support locally for, for these people. Another question Dr. Bose asked local residents was, where do you think refugees should be resettled in the state? This is a difficult question to answer, considering that Chittenden County has been the primary destination for resettlement for over 30 years. Placing refugees in other parts of the state could pose significant challenges in terms of access to public transportation, access to local agencies and service providers, providing refugees with access to other refugee community groups, and even access to different ethnic foods, for example. Dr. Bose's research found that most respondents have chosen evenly across the state as their top answer to the question of where refugees should be placed in Vermont. A declining number of respondents have indicated a preference for refugees being placed primarily in Chittenden County. I was curious to see if the people I interviewed had different answers than the Vermonter poll survey results. So I made sure to ask people I interviewed the same question. As you might expect, I got very different answers from everyone that I spoke with. However, I think Selena Colburn's response shows a personal perspective that could not have been expressed clearly if the results were only shown in the format of a survey. So Selena, do you think refugees should be resettled in Vermont? And if yes, where do you think they should be resettled? I... Wow, that is a really loaded question because I really want to say just ethically, morally, that I think, I mean, just the, so <laughs> I I barely believe in the concept of nation states, you know, like it's a struggle for me, um, which probably is makes me a little bit of an outlier as a an elected official like I um, appreciate my country and I have some pride in my country and I have some shame in my country and I like struggle to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag at the beginning of every week in the legislature so the idea of um like whether or not we should allow people to 
come somewhere and where they should be allowed to come, it's just a kind of a hard, I struggle with that concept at all. So I want to say, yes, Vermont should accept refugees, and we should accept refugees everywhere in Vermont. Um, As we now know, because of the low ceiling for refugee entry set by the current administration, it is actually very unlikely that more refugees will be resettled in places outside of Chittenden County, like Rutland, for example. It's also important to note that once refugees are resettled, they're free to move wherever they want to. And like college students, for example, refugees usually go where there are resources. Even though refugees want to preserve some of their cultural traditions, they also want to fit in. And Vermonters seem to want to help them do that. Like, how do we welcome people into our predominantly white state that isn't always owning its own racism or xenophobia? And what, you know, what um, is incumbent on us as communities to make people truly welcomed and allow the possibility that people can come here and thrive. Americans come in all colors, practice all types of religions, and speak many languages from all over the world. Most of us subscribe to the general ideas of liberty, equality, democracy, and diversity. Isn't welcoming refugees and immigrants, of all kind, for that matter, core not only to the history of this nation, but to its future strengths? for listening today and i hope you have a fantastic rest of your week don't forget to like share or comment on this episode i always appreciate your feedback this podcast was created and produced by your host tilden Reamerleach. The intro music for the show was created and produced by Edward James. The production of this show received funding from the University of Vermont's College of Arts and Sciences Apple Award and the four mini-grants. Other music featured in this episode includes Long Road Ahead and Good Morning by Audio Binger. 
Stuck by Ryan Little, Enthusiast by Tor, and music from zapsplat.com. No. Mm-hmm.